0: Hello, it's Basha Cummings here. I'm an editor at Tortoise, which is the home of Sweet Bobby, Hoaxed and many more award-winning investigative podcasts. I'm here to tell you about Tortoise Investigates, where we curate the best of our chart-topping investigations in one place. Everything from extraordinary tales of deception to a suspicious killing to one mother's decades-long fight with the police. Just search for Tortoise Investigates wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Well, the one helicopter was the hotel manager and a few of his staff took them and the two dogs. It was at that point we realized, you know, we've been abandoned. You know, they, they locked up the food. We had one meal since Wednesday night. So they locked up the food. Um, they denied us access to the Wi-Fi from Friday morning and that was it. If the if the helicopters are
3: going, then we must go.
0: With around two hundred civilians trapped inside, the manager, known as Robbie, had been airlifted out of the Amarula hotel with his staff and his boss's two German shepherd dogs. The food was locked and the Wi-Fi had been switched off or wasn't working anymore, depending on who you speak to.
3: So Robbie's gone.
0: The man that they had looked to for leadership, who the civilians trapped inside understood to be organising their escape, he'd gone. It's a hard thing to imagine as somebody who grew up in the West, to imagine that you would just be left to die. But it's an important point to acknowledge here in this story, to confront head-on. It's a point about privilege. As a foreign contractor, you'd assume, wouldn't you, that efforts would be made to come and save you, that your employer would organise something or embassies would kick into gear, that there would be levers to pull. It is, perhaps then, the definition of privilege, to think that your life matters to someone beyond just you. It wasn't the same, of course, for the Mozambican civilians, people who lived in the remotest, poorest region of the country who were used to being forgotten. It's a privilege that they didn't have. Their army wasn't coming for them. In fact, they were as terrified of the army as they were of the Islamists. And so by this point, three days into the attack, everyone was relying on the leverage of the foreign contractors and hotel management to get them out. And it's why when Timothy Roberts, or Robbie, left... It hit everyone so hard.
3: It's like a nightmare that you're stuck in, that this just cannot be real. We will die because if we stay here, we will die anyway.
4: And I just wrote him a message and I just said like, I love you, I love you, I love you, you can do this. We had so many people feeling scared, waiting for the rescue that never came.
3: They were abandoned. They were abandoned. And that makes me so fucking angry.
0: I'm Basha Cummings, and you're listening to episode two of Left to Die The Escape from the Amarula. In episode one, an Islamist insurgency hits the town, and civilians rush to the Amarula Hotel to take shelter. Over three days, they wait for a rescue that never comes. In this episode, the story of their harrowing escape. And I need to warn you this episode is a difficult listen. After Robbie left, it was a clear sign they were alone. Black, white, local, foreign, they were all in the same position. Assan, the local street vendor, was one of them.
3: On the last day, they were transporting people by helicopter. The helicopter came, but it only took the owner of the Amarula Hotel, a white man, and two dogs, and one black man who was also responsible for Amarula. We and the other white men stayed behind.
0: And around the time that Robbie was escaping in the private chopper, a plan emerged. Wes's older brother, Adrian, usually worked as a commercial diver, but the pandemic had made work really difficult to pin down. He had three children and a wife, and after months of struggling to get by, he accepted an invitation from his brother to join the construction project in Palma. And Adrian, well, by now, he'd had enough. He had decided that he was going to try and recover a gun. He
4: was with them every step. he never delegated, he was never on the side. He- Always did everything with them.
0: This is Janique, Adrian's wife. She's Canadian and she was 18 when she met Adrian. they have been together for 21 years. When I spoke to her, she told me this was typical of Adrian. Of course it would have been him to have come up with a plan like this. About two
4: years ago, we were driving with the kids in the car and he saw a lady and her car was on fire and she was on the side of the road. And he rushed us all to the nearest Restaurant. He ran in the restaurant. He basically stole their fire extinguisher or got like a quick permission. Then he raced us all back, parked us far away so that the car could not explode. And he went and he put out the fire at the car. And like, there's just, there's millions of these stories.
0: When contact had been fully cut off on the Friday, that's when Janique really started to worry.
4: So on the Friday, it was the only day I've been working from home for a year and a half. It was the only day I went to the office because it was the one year anniversary of lockdown. So we all went and worked in the office. I mean, ridiculous. And it's only then when I lost communication with Wesley that I started to become really concerned.
0: And what she didn't know at that time was that Adrian was taking matters into his own hands.
3: Adrian then said, guys, we cannot be sitting ducks like this. Someone was with us that told us, listen, there's a a car outside, parked out just outside the gate. And there's a AK-47 inside the back of the car. And that was it. Adrian thought, listen, that's our only protection. We need that. If we have that, at least we, we can be safe someone had already pulled out uh, two sets of uh, helmets and World Food Program bulletproof vests. He put the helmet and the bulletproof vest on and that was it. He didn't, no one even asked him, he just decided, we need that gun, I'm going to go get it. So he went there with a the local security guy, opened the little people, by now they, the gate had gun uh, bullet holes through the gate. Opened there, was looking around, couldn't see anybody. I got a a bar stool, put it up on the wall, and I I crept up over the wall and I put my phone to try to see with the camera. And I was watching the camera to see if I could see anybody. It looked quiet, so I peeked my head over. It looked quiet, but there's thick bush on the other side of the road.
0: There's a video of this whole episode, and it is hair-raising, Wes climbing on a barstool, looking over the wall of the hotel with his phone. You can see Adrian, this oversized helmet, sitting wonkily on his head, creeping towards a pickup truck on the other side of the road, outside the hotel wall. Wes asks everyone to be quiet as Adrian tries to get out onto the road outside.
3: I said to him, well, it seems clear... So he opened the door and uh, he went running to the to the car He had the guy's car keys got to the door tried to open the door he, he <laughs> couldn't open uh, uh, trying to push buttons it wouldn't open so then he went to the other side opened the, the, the door with the key opened it and the alarm went off. My heart just sank. and uh, then he's struggling with the keys to turn the alarm off got the alarm off it's not behind the seat he's looking in the car there. can't he finds a big duffel bag which is a military bag he grabs that and he runs back to the to the pedestrian gate drops that off go go go, go go to the mahindra they start ripping out everything there look at it no gun So then, shit, he decides to run back to go look again. Now he's, he ran around the car to the front, opened it, looking under the seats everywhere he can, nothing. Now I'm shouting to him, listen, I can hear a car or I can hear a bark. There's, there's a car down there, someone in a taxi. Adrian, come back, come back. What are you doing? Adrian, come. Adrian. Come. So he's like, hold on, hold on. Come, man. How doing? Eventually, he comes running back. He says he can't find it. Uh, Everyone saying, well, maybe it's behind the back seat. So the <laughs> third time he runs back. This time, one of the, the local security guards runs with him. The, he, he managed to unlock the, the back seat, finds the gun there. Uh, the security guard took the gun and they ran back. I tell you, at that moment, we felt amazing. You know, such it was a victory. We, we had protection.
0: They were risking their lives to recover one knackered AK-47. Wes said it looked like something that had come up out of the Titanic. And I don't think you can quite hear it on the recording, but when Wes was telling me this story, I was barely breathing, wincing as he told me about the car alarm and watching him on the Zoom screen through my fingers. Again, it was just the absurdity of it all that hit me. Hundreds of insurgents all around, Wes with a barstool and his phone, all to recover this one ancient gun to protect them.
3: Adrian and Nick and everybody, we started to get everybody, even the locals, to start carrying blocks, those uh, bricks, back to reinforce the the gates. Because now we thought, okay, we're going to have to spend another night So while they were were carrying all that, I was with all the other people that were still trying to get information on the evacuation and so on. Yeah. So when I was with those guys, they said, listen, uh, one of the problems we've got is we don't have communication.
0: There had been talk of a satellite phone left in one of the rooms, so Wes went and got it, and they managed to dial on to one of the shipping channels.
3: Once the dag choppers are in the air, They don't have communications with the ground. So someone said to us uh, that there's some radios in one of the bedrooms. So I went hunting through the room and I found the radios. I brought it back to our little group that was trying to communicate with whoever we could, yeah, while everyone else, AD and uh, I think Nick, you as well, you guys were carrying all the blocks to the, the gates. We turned on the radios and we got in touch with TOTEL, the, the shipping channel. We told them, listen, this is us at the Amarula. We, are, we just want to find out what's what's going on. You know, Is anyone coming to get us? Someone came onto the line and said, "Oh, but we thought that you've already gone in the convoy. And we said, no, we haven't gone. No one could give us confirmation that we're going to get uh, air support and the choppers have already left. So now we're thinking, shit, the, the choppers have left. And here they're thinking, everyone's thinking that we're gone.
2: Well, we had just overheard on the, on the other channel, them saying in Afrikaans that, you know, they were getting called, you know, they used the expression 80 times a day by family, wanting to know what's happening with us. And they don't know what to tell these people anymore. Uh, in fact, the words were, I don't know what to fucking tell these people anymore. But, but it was in Afrikaans. So that was on the shipping channel. but
0: And who was saying that, sorry? That was somebody who worked for Total?
2: Yeah, well, it was on the shipping channel. So I assume it was them and their logistics people. You know, that and with, with Robbie leaving and it getting dark and Dag not being able to provide air cover in the dark, we realised we left with one option, and that is to try and break through with a, with a convoy.
0: Given how serious this attack was, how sophisticated it was, I had to wonder about the risk that Total and the Mozambican government had taken to even start this gas project. Why hadn't the insurgency been brought under control before more and more people began pouring into the region? Had the militants attacked Palmer because of the gas? And why hadn't anyone been prepared? And the answer to these questions lies, in part, in a scandal. Let me rewind for a moment. Mozambique was one of the last countries in Africa to free itself from its colonial ruler, Portugal. Samora Michel, a political leader and fighter, finally declared independence on the 25th of June 1975 after a 10-year liberation struggle. Michel's Marxist party, called Frelimo, took power. 46 years later, and Frilimo still rules the country. And after a long civil war finally ended in the 1990s, Mozambique's economy was looking up. And then that incredible discovery is made. Giant fields of natural gas, discovered first by an American company called Anadarko in 2010, followed by an Italian company called Eni in 2011. And just to capture the scale of it all, it's now estimated there could be over 20 billion barrels of natural gas and that they could earn almost $100 billion over the next 25 years. It was a blessing and it was going to transform Mozambique, but it was also a curse. Because after the discovery of the gas, but before anyone had secured the money to actually get it out from under the seabed, $2 billion in questionable bank loans were taken out by Mozambican state-owned companies from two banks, the Swiss bank Credit Suisse and a Russian bank called VTB.
2: Mozambique, in the meantime, is disputing, fiercely disputing claims by the IMF that it has hidden loans of over a billion dollars more than
0: previously disclosed.
2: Many loans were taken
1: and concealed, causing a
2: scandal that
1: continues to stay on the political agenda.
0: Around $1.2 billion of it was taken out in secret. After all, what's 1.2 billion if somebody's saying that you're sitting on 100 billion? But of course, it wasn't that simple. Around 2016, gas prices were collapsing and the development of the gas fields was delayed. It left Mozambique with a huge debt before any real work had even started. And it's the context in which the oil and gas giant ExxonMobil pitches up in 2017, and then the French company Total arrives in 2019, taking the reins on a project worth $20 billion. And it's the context in which the Mozambican government, now horribly in debt, promises to protect the gas project from the rumbling extremist threat. They need this to go ahead.
5: We,
3: the government and Mozambicans, don't want that to happen. We don't want our partners starting to panic. The good thing is that there's a lot of collaboration between us and the multinationals responsible for the exploitation of natural gas. But we'll have to take measures,
2: extraordinary measures, if needed... To make sure this doesn't overshadow Mozambique's growth in the region.
0: And of course, the Islamist militants operating in the north of the country, well, they use this to their advantage.
3: You end up with a situation where you have all the groundwork done for some kind of insurgency. You know, you've got a marginalized, peripheral part of Mozambique, you've got deep resentment at a distant elite, Uh, you've got criminal networks that are working there, you've got very poor people.
0: Jason Burke is an old colleague of mine, and he's the man to talk to about extremists.
3: There's no doubt that the big foreign investments in Cabo Delgado for the gas have had a significant negative effect. That A lot of people see a massive amount of money being spent in their backyard and potentially a massive amount of money being made, of which they will get very little.
0: Add to this a village resettlement programme, basically the moving of families from their homes to make way for the gas project, which upset many local people. This is Tomash Kafas, an expert on the region.
2: The resettlement process was a little bit problematic because many, many young people in Palma were saying that the project is employing more people from other regions of Mozambique. So by
0: 2019, when Nick and Wes and hundreds of other contractors began working on the gas project... This was the landscape that they were entering into, one where billions had been spent already, where corruption had added urgency to the gas project, and where a forgotten population promised jobs that never materialised were now vulnerable to extremists promising them wages and a gun. Back inside the hotel, a plan was taking shape. And it's not clear exactly how it came about, who first suggested it, but suddenly there was talk of a convoy. And I had in my mind that it was like a flock of birds taking to the sky. There's never just one bird that starts it, but it's a moment, a critical mass of movement. And it's what seems to have happened inside the Amarula. Everyone was waiting until they just weren't waiting anymore. They were going to escape, They'd realised that Robbie had left. And I tried to imagine the psychology of it, the powerlessness. Each key moment in this story that we've heard so far, the recovery of the AK-47, trying to build a wall with the blocks they could find, these were tiny moments of autonomy, about taking back some kind of control in the face of total, fatal chaos. And the plan that emerged was this. They were going to assemble all the cars that they had and drive out of there in a convoy, around 150 people. Hassan said that by this point, they just felt that they couldn't risk another night in the hotel.
3: He called me at the last minute, 4.15pm, saying, Shut the door. Tomorrow we'll have help. The helicopter will come to the rescue and you'll leave. We were not sure if that was a plan or not, but we thought we can stay here, we have to leave. That was the fifth day.
0: And it was the foreign contractors who came up with the convoy idea. They were the ones with the satellite phones, and after all, the cars belonged to them, or their companies. They were trying to reach the mercenaries, DAG, the Dyke Advisory Group, to see if they could provide air cover if they did decide to drive out. In a video that Wes shared, you can see a mishmash of vehicles, just enough to cram 150 civilians in. No bags, they say to people. They're going to take up too much space.
3: Taking space for one person. No bags.
4: Actually, you? Leave your bags. No bags.
0: In total, around 17 vehicles left the Amarula Hotel in a convoy late afternoon on Friday, the 26th of March, just before the sun began to set. One car, the only armoured vehicle, went first, filled with women and children.
3: There's no one in the armoured car. You guys going in the armoured car. So who's going in the armoured car? Kids,
0: And the moment that this convoy leaves the hotel is where Nick and Wes's stories diverge. So let me start with Wes, who crammed into a car with his dad, his brother Adrian, and some local Mozambican civilians.
3: The air can run here. Yeah. How much fuel you got Asia? Full tank. Even? Yeah. Oh, here's the big eh? yeah. helicopter. Huh? Yeah, but they're asking for, can we go? Is it clear? Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: You can feel the tension. Everyone is nervous. They're sweating. It's hot.
4: Who's opening the gate?
0: Who's opening the gate, one Mozambican man asks.
3: Can we not, uh, can we not... Look over the wall and see if
1: it's clear here. Yeah.
0: You can see pickup trucks crammed with civilians in the back, utterly exposed, squashed together. Wes and Adrian's car was fourth in the convoy. Adrian is in the driving seat. The car is packed. Two men are tucked away in the boot.
3: It's going to be the driver of your life, right?
0: Adrian tells his brother Wes to get the first aid kit ready, the one with the blood coagulant in. Yeah.
3: We'll Get, get that uh, pack out with the blood coagulation. Okay. I need the bag down there. There's medic uh, first aid stuff in there. I remember when we pulled out there, that was just, from that moment we pulled out there, it was just terrifying. And, you know, Adrian put his foot down and we were going as fast as we could without crashing. You know, it's a dirt road with lots of big puddles and holes in the road. So you're trying to be careful, but, you know, we're going 100 k's an hour down this road and there's just a lot of dust in front of us of from the cars ahead of us it was just after the the road going into the airstrip that was where where we first got shot at and uh, just remember and that sound of the the bullets hitting the car and hitting the steel is something else i felt a bullet come underneath my foot it hit the bottom of the of the car and I could feel where it hit and my foot came up from it. Checked everybody's okay, but that was, now it was panic stations and we're driving as fast as we can. Yeah, straight after that, about 800 meters down the road, one of the cars in front of us had got hit and badly with bullets and the front of their car was smashed. So i don't know what they hit if they hit that uh, side of a tree or something but they were um, flagging us down we came stopped next to them and they saying their car's done they need to get in but you know our car was full i think we had nine people in a in a suv so we were full we stopped next to them and there was a a minibus behind us in the convoy. They stopped and they ran and they jumped into the minibus, left the car rolling backwards down the little hill, carried on driving, not knowing, you know, is there another ambush or what the case is, but
0: flying. In South Africa, Adrian's wife, Shanique, hears about the escape plan. I got a
4: message. I was getting messages about with helicopters arriving, not arriving, and I speak Portuguese, so my mother-in-law was sending me a a lot of things, so I was translating those things as they were going live and sending them to her, and it was only when we got the message, it was sort of a detailed message about the plan for the convoy because nothing else was working, and that's when the ball sort of dropped for me. Now I start to get very anxious. There's nothing you can really do. It's just like you look and look and wait. And the the message had said that they would be doing this between 4.30 and 5.
0: Back on the road out of the Amarula, Wes and Adrian's car had made it through the first ambush. They were heading to a quarry nearby where they thought that they could make a run to the beach and get picked up from there. Adrian had his foot on the accelerator. They were racing to get to safety.
3: We get to this one straight piece, and that's when we we got ambushed for the second time. And that's where the, they fight into the car and the, the side window smashed. And um, I just remember Adrian screaming, I'm hit, I'm hit. I look down at his shoulder, and there's a big hole in his shoulder, just behind his shoulder. Uh, that's, you know, panic starts to happen. Uh, He had given me this little medical kit that actually had these things that you put in for bullet wounds that stops the the bleeding. So I was struggling to open that up. Get it open. It's got an applicator, like a plastic applicator that you take the little fan, it's like a big injection. I did this. He's still driving at this stage, but now he's shouting that, guys, I can't drive, I can't drive. And they're saying... "Um, just keep on driving he's like my leg is off so we didn't know that he had been hit in his uh, leg as well but i thought it was just in his uh, his behind his shoulder his right arm had dropped and he was driving with his left arm and our guy next to who was sitting in the passenger side, side was helping him steer adrian was Carrying on driving with his left foot on the accelerator while hit. When I put that applicator with that anticoagulant medicine in, half my hand went into his shoulder. That's how big the, the wound was. And I, I just I panicked at that stage. And he's saying, guys, I can't, I can't drive. You need to take over. Everyone's shouting back to him, just keep on driving. And he says, I can't. I'm going. I'm going. And that was when he started to, his eyes closed and um, his foot came off the accelerator and we came to a stop.
0: Wesley jumped out and pulled his brother from the front seat. He started driving himself with Adrian now sitting behind him.
3: As we came around the one corner, we saw that there was a whole bunch of trucks, big dumper trucks that were parked sort of facing us. And when we got closer there, we had seen that all the drivers, the doors were open and the drivers had been killed. And some of them were decapitated and they were put lying across the road to block us or any vehicles driving. So we just drove as fast as we could over. Over the bodies, which was an unbelievable feeling that there was nowhere else for us to go. We we couldn't get through anywhere. So we had to drive over them. We got to the quarry and we managed to catch up to the armored vehicle. And where we were meant to turn right into the quarry, there was another road going straight. And we trying to hoot at them, tell them to turn right. But we also don't want to make it too noisy. So they carried on straight and we turned right. And some of the other cars that had caught up to us from behind followed us into the quarry. When we came to a stop at the quarry there, turned off the car and I just looked back at my brother. And, yeah, he was already dead at that time. There was so much blood everywhere. And my dad was shaking, absolutely uncontrollable shaking. And he's like, just get to this, to the containers there. I can't lose both my sons.
0: Adrian Nell died just before his 41st birthday. He'd saved the lives of everyone in the car.
4: I mean, Adrian's been in crazy situations and things, and it just never really dawned on me. So I got the message and then it said between 4.30 and 5.00. I actually had a colleague's 30th birthday party that evening. I left work and as I was driving, it's about a 20, 20 or 30 minute drive in the traffic on a Friday afternoon. And all of a sudden I just had this enormous urge. I had, to, I had to pull over and stop on the side of the road. And I just wrote him a message and I just said, like, I love you, I love you, I love you. You can do this. I had really thought that that time when I pulled over and I looked at my messages and it was 5.08 that I was driving home from work. And in my heart, I had thought that that must have been the moment that he passed or something. But I later found out that because of the ambush, they had to leave much earlier. So he had, he was already gone a long time before
0: A man that we're calling Alfredo, one of the Mozambicans at the hotel who was praised for his leadership, his car was headed straight to the beach with almost 100 people. And it was there that he was picked up and taken to the provincial capital, Pemba. He wanted to stay anonymous, and so this is an actor reading his testimony.
5: When we got to the beach, we separated into small groups so we could enter a handmade boat so we could go to an area farther from the shore. The first boat could only take 70 people. We decided that on the first boat will go a member who had been shot on the knee, and we were able to put him on a small boat as he couldn't stand up or move much that was safer. He lost consciousness, but then we woke up again and we put him in a position where he would lose less blood. That's how we started organizing. But the managers who were there, white and South African, they supported the organizing of the first and the second boat. It was distressing since we left through the gate, crossed the valley, we rode through bodies on the ground because it seems there was an attack on some tracks. The driver was on the ground. I was right in front seeing, verifying if the road was open. I was in the front as a co-pilot. Behind us were the ladies and the children in an armed car. The best car we had. We wanted to put them there so the women and the children were protected.
0: Alfredo had taken the same road as Wes and they'd seen the same bodies decapitated on the road the victims of the insurgency strewn all around. Back at the quarry, Wes and his dad, with Adrian's body, suddenly found themselves alone.
3: My dad said, we have to um, go now. We have to get to the bush in case there's insurgents around, yeah, with all the noise that's been going on. So we, um, we covered him up, and um, I remember there was this, on the seat, there was this big pile of congealed blood. It just disgusted me to see so much blood. And I picked it up and I threw it up the car. I was just covered in blood from head to toe. We had some water with us, which they, they used to wash my face and my arms, and uh, the some of the blood off, but um, it was still all over. From there he said, um we have we can't take him with us to we don't it's a far walk to um to the bush and to the beach, but um We'll come back for them. So we walked uh, out through the quarry and, you know, the, the sun was already going down at that stage. Walked into some thick brush on the other side of the quarry and we managed to find a very big bab tree with some very thick, dense bush around it. We walked into this and um, uh, hid under there. We were all just in complete shock thinking, what's well, just happened, yeah.
0: So Adrian, Adrian was still in the car?
3: Yeah, he was on the car, which breaks my heart, you know. And uh, we just uh, sat there trying to figure out what to do. You know, we didn't know how far we are from the insurgents or if there's anyone around, so we huddled under that dense bush, hiding behind the tree. And, yeah, I just... Uh, All I had in my mind is that I just can't believe that this has happened. It's not real. My brother's not dead. Yeah, so we, at that stage there, Martin had a satellite phone and uh, he went into a little opening and uh, he phoned his uh, company up in Joburg and told them what had happened. And um, they said to him, just stay there. They're going to try to get hold of Dag to come and rescue us in the morning, which we did. So we um, we covered up for the night and um, tried to go to sleep. The problem was, was whenever somebody fell asleep, they would start snoring and we would uh, wake them up because it was so loud that we thought that somebody or the insurgents would hear us.
0: There's these little moments of absurdity, aren't there, that both of you have encountered, you know, the... The the bar stool, or the the cheers over the AK rescued from the back of the car amidst this just unbelievable story.
3: (laughs) I I, I remember after Adrian got the AK, I kept on saying to him, you know, if we were in the military, you would have gotten a medal of honour for that or bravery. And I tell you, just, I've never met anyone as brave as him. And that goes throughout my life knowing him, yeah. So, but yeah, coming to terms with what happened that night was just, it was the hardest thing I've ever had to even contemplate. It's like a nightmare that you're stuck in, that it's, it just cannot be real.
0: They spent the night sleeping exhausted, traumatized in the bush. And on Saturday morning, Wes woke up at 5 a.m. And finally, the rescue came but before he agreed to be taken anywhere he asked the pilots to make him a promise
3: before I got on the chopper I, I made them promise that um I'm not going I'm not getting on the chopper without them coming back to fetch my brother which the guard did they took us eventually um uh, over palma over the, the sea to afunji dropped us off there and um yeah we waited there until um They said they're going back to go fetch my brother, which they did. When they arrived back, they said to us, okay, they've got my brother. Um, We must get in the chopper. They're gonna take us to their base in Famisi Island. And from there, we can catch uh, a little plane of theirs back to Pemba. Uh, So uh, it was the hardest thing ever. When I walked around to get into the chopper, my brother's body was there and not covered and uh we had to get him next to him and oof, it's, that's extremely hard you know this is somebody that i loved my brother yeah. extremely close they uh took us to the island i remember this the dagger asking them to bring um, black bags to cover him. so they covered him and then um carried him and put him into the little plane, three-seater plane. They loaded him into the back of the cargo thing and I had to lie right next to him, all the way back to Pemba. I just um, held his hand and closed my eyes. Got to Pemba and um, a friend of ours who lived there got there. He drove straight into the the airport and uh, when I saw him, he was just in tears, all of us. He gave my dad his phone, and my dad said he had to phone my mom. As he phoned my mom, he just shouted into the phone, I'm so sorry. I could only bring one of them back. Then he just collapsed on the tarmac.
0: I'm so sorry, Wesley.
3: They unloaded my brother's body and, uh, into an ambulance. They had already, my friends, they had prepared a, um, a space at the mortuary and took him there. Only later, that I found out that my brother had actually been shot three times. He took all three bullets. None of us had been hit. And he got shot in the chest, just above the, the bulletproof vest, just above it, in the shoulder and in the hip. And he still continued to drive that way.
0: So he saved your lives, hundred
3: percent. I'm still struggling to come to terms that I got out and he didn't. I just wish that I, that I could swap places
5: with him.
0: Wes's story moved me deeply. You can hear it in the recording. I was in tears, my producer was in tears, Nick, also on the call, was in tears, though he's heard the story many times. And so, of course, I wanted to speak to Janique to get a sense of who this remarkable man was.
4: I focused on the fact that he was a hero and then he had to sacrifice his uh, life and that he saved his brother and his father and other people. And um, when the last thing he said, and it just sticks with me, and I'm like, it's exactly him. He said, uh, "Jenny, you know, I'll always follow you into the fire.
0: And I have to say here that I was unprepared for Jeannique. She challenged me head on. She was one of the most remarkable people that I spoke to in the course of reporting this story. She's utterly headstrong, clear eyed, and generous about how she thinks that this story should be told. She told me in no uncertain terms don't you dare tell a story only about Adrian and Wes. This is the story of the Mozambican people, she told me, of Asan and Alfredo and the thousands of others who have suffered in the insurgency.
4: That's like my hugest thing is don't forget that. And like, that's why i was like, I don't want to exploit our grief again. It's always the story. Like I would almost like to match it in my mind. Where's the story to match it about the other hero, about somebody that doesn't have the privilege, that doesn't have the context, that doesn't have it. And why are we not talking about them as well?
0: And of course, she's right. So in a way, I failed her. For me, as a journalist from London, it's easier to tell Nick and Wes's stories. I could reach them. They're safe, though they're grieving, back in South Africa. They can speak freely to me. It's not the same for Alfredo and Hassan. They're still in Mozambique, living in fear of the military who could target them if they speak to journalists. Which brings me back to the question of privilege. Not just in who was rescued and who was able to plan an escape, but whose story is told. Nearly 68,000 people had to flee their homes after the attack in March. In just a year, the number of people internally displaced in northern Mozambique has increased from 172,000 to over 732,000 people. They've got no food, no homes, they're hard to reach, and humanitarian organisations can barely get to them as the insurgency carries on. So, more than anyone else in this story, no one is coming to rescue them. But then again, I suppose I don't fully agree with Janique. Adrian's story deserves to be told too. It's a story of remarkable bravery and one which she treats with her brilliantly sober view of the world.
4: Because sometimes I get momentarily angry with him because he had three kids and why was he going out for the gun and why was he driving, you know, just those questions come up. So this is an example of who he was. So when I have those moments... Every now and then I get mad about it and then I think of exactly what he would have said and it makes me laugh is that whenever he did anything naughty or stupid or something that he could have been more responsible about and I call him on, he would say something exactly like this. He'd think about it and be like, you're right, Shani, dick move. (laughs) Like, it was a dick move. And I asked Wesley, I said, I was like, so just wondering, why did we decide Adrian was the driver? And he said, John, there wasn't even a question. Adrian was always the driver. It's like, yeah, get in the car and Adrian's driving. And I'm like, yeah, that's right. It's always Adrian. He's the guy. He's the yes man for everything. The yes man.
0: In all the videos that were shared with me, there's one that's quieter and shorter than the others. Wes and Adrian are sitting outside in the Amarula Hotel. Wes turns his phone camera to focus on Adrian's face. It's a brief moment between brothers.
3: Love you, bro. Love you, my man.
0: And the look on Wes's face, it's just full of pride. In the third and final part of this story, Nick's escape from the Amarula.
2: We're wondering if it would be quick or would they drag it out like they have with killing
0: locals, you know? How accusations of racism were levelled at rescuers and a final promise.
2: We're desperate to get back and to try and meet up with him and, you know, do something to show our thanks and appreciation. I really hope we get to do that.
0: Adrian is survived by his wife and three young children living in South Africa. If you've been moved by his story and you'd like to support his family and his legacy, you can make a donation in his name at www.backabuddy.co.za forward slash Adrian Nell, that's N-E-L. Thanks for listening. This story was written and reported by me, Basha Cummings, produced by Matt Russell, with additional reporting and fact-checking by Claudia Williams. Sound design is by Carla Patella, a podcast by Tortoise Studios. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you could consider becoming a member of the newsroom that I work in. It's called Tortoise, and our members help shape the stories that we tell. To find out more, go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash friend. And if you'd like, you can sign up with my code BASHA50. That's basia five zero. Thank you for listening. Stay with us for episode three.